Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, the horror movie that wrecked childhoods, part two. So if you're new here, the way this podcast works is we ask about a half a million horror fans online that follow us on various social media platforms a question. They basically are voting with their reactions or comments, and then we pick out what's most interesting, including the results, and talk about it on the podcast. We're basically a radio station for our horror community. So we had asked the question, name a movie that wrecked your childhood. We actually didn't specify a horror movie. We left it broad as just movie movie to see what happened. And we got tens of thousands of answers. In a previous episode, we'd covered the movie Phantasm, which didn't get the most votes, but surprised us by how many votes it got and by how passionate the replies were. This week, we're going to talk about the top vote getter, which really was unexpected. In second place was The Exorcist with more than 2,000 votes. And basically right behind it, tied was Jaws. But in first place with more than 4,000 votes was a movie that a lot of horror fans consider to be one of the very best sequels ever made. 1987's Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. One of the very first comments to kick off the voting was a, a picture of Philip being puppeteered to death in what's the first kill of Elm Street 3. And here's just a sampling of the comments that came under this vote. Rachel Westman said, Oh my God, yes, I saw that scene way too young, and now I can't get blood, blood drawn without passing out. Tanya replied to her saying, Oh my God, maybe that's why I have such a fear of getting blood drawn also. Marion Ullman said, Oh man, looking at this picture, I swear I can feel this with like 85 ease and feel. Mandy Fields said, I was 12 the first time I saw this scene and it fucked me up. At that point, it was the most disturbing thing I'd ever seen. Ha! Ross Favel said, made me gag, LOL. Rhiannon Lynn said, one of my most fearsome intrusive thoughts. Eli Avanzi said, exactly this scene. My father was stupid enough to take me to see it when I was a little girl. And even now, I think of the most traumatic scene in a movie. This is what comes to mind. It still bothers me to touch my wrist tendons. Lori Englick said, definitely, I think of this part in this movie to this day. Just a couple more. DeMar Gardner said, I was just talking about how this movie truly fucked me up to this day. And Jared Horton bravely said, I want to dress as this guy for Halloween one year, veins and all. So Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is about the last of the Elm Street kids teaming up with Nancy, who's turning in or finding her Van Helsing mode to try to bring an end to Freddy once and for all. Good luck with that. So despite the relative financial success of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, because of the mostly indifferent response from critics and fans, New Line was determined to bring Wes Craven back into the fold, at least his ideas and writing, and get back to what made the original Nightmare 
so great. So Wes Craven wrote the first draft of the script for this, and it was, the original draft was very, very dark. Some of that holds over into this movie for sure, and I think maybe one of the reasons this movie got so many votes for something that screwed people up when they were kids is even where the darkness got cut out and replaced by a little more comedy or a little more special effects, etc. Maybe the DNA of that darkness is still in the movie lurking in the shadows where it's not left in altogether because there are some great brutal and dark scenes and there's some a really dark backstory and a lot of things that are intimated that if you think about them they turn out to be really really disturbing Wes Craven stepped away from directing this but in maybe I don't know the only instance in horror history where a sentence starts with Wes Craven stepped away from directing. It's not that bad because in comes Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell. What what a duo to come in and work on this. They both did passes on the script and Chuck stayed around to direct the film. On last week's episode of Horror Weekly, I talked about the 1988 remake of The Blob, which I still think is one of the best horror movies of the 80s, also by Chuck Russell. So instead of walking through the plot uh, chronologically of a movie that's so well known to horror fans, I I just want to talk about what really makes this stand out and special to me. And let's just jump right into, first of all, the the prey or the victims or the, the dream warriors themselves, the people who are going to be fighting Freddy. Just think about this for a second. If you flash back and try to think about, say, Friday the 13th Part 3 or any of the Final Destination movies might be a good example. Can you name all the people who are basically in Final Destination at war with death? Right. Like, let's take Final Destination 2. Do you remember the kills? Do you remember all the characters that death goes after? Do you remember kind of what motivates them and why? And Final Destination 2 is a great movie. And I think off the top of my head, I might be able to name two thirds of the characters that are up against. But even in a movie that good, it's a struggle to recall them all. And Even some of the ones I'm recalling as I talk, I don't really care about. Like Final Destination 3 is like my Dark Horse favorite of that franchise. I have a really soft spot in my heart for that one. I love it. But like, do I care about like the suntan bed deaths and the it's they're almost there to be the victims. Right. But in Elm Street 3. Whether it's Kristen, played by Patricia Arquette in her feature film debut, or it's Philip the Sleepwalker, who we just talked about getting marionetted to death, or Kincaid, the Hulk of the movie, or Jennifer, who's going to be welcomed to prime time, or Will, who is in a wheelchair and becomes the wizard master, or Taryn, the drug addict or Joey, the one who's too traumatized to speak. I remember all of them. I know what motivates them. I 
care about them and I care about their dynamics with each other. They're each distinct in a way that's very hard to do in horror movies when you have when you have this many characters going up against a villain. And the dream superpowers play a really tricky role in this movie. It's more sophisticated than I gave it credit for when I first watched it. Because, I mean, these are kids that were on the verge of becoming adults, and then they got sidetracked by this nightly encounter with Freddy and being confined to a mental hospital. And the... In a, the imagination of kids about what it must be like to be an adult, that sort of feels like a superpower when you're that age. When you're thinking, wait, so when I'm an adult, I can drink beer whenever I want and I can order pizza whenever I want and I can drive my car anywhere I want. That feels like you're on the verge of attaining superpowers. Maybe for the only time in a teenage to an adult's life. I'm like, if you're 40 years old working your job right now, you probably don't feel like you have superpowers necessarily at your job, unless you're really, really lucky. But they're fantasizing about these superpowers, but they're going to come up against a villain who actually has a superpower. And even worse, it's an adult. I mean, beyond adults, right? This is someone who's going to go on and on and on, who's already killed a bunch of kids just like them. So he has experience on them. He has wisdom on them. And he's going to use his adult knowledge to pick at their weaknesses and make them fold based on their own weaknesses. It's the way he comes at Terran with let's get high. <laughs> and to have kids who have misjudged what superpowers might be actually like come up against an adult who unfairly not only has age and experience on them, but an actual superpower that he is real he's welded into uh, no pun intended with his glove, a, a fine weapon. It, there's just seemingly no chance. And it's pretty cruel. And even worse, none of the adults at the mental hospital are going to believe them. And much like the Charles Schultz Peanuts comic strip, there are no parents to be found, really. John Saxon is going to come in in what is sort of a could have been a glorified cameo, but really is integral to the movie, and it's great to see him as um, Nancy's dad. But mostly the the parents are useless, or even worse than useless. They're just telling their kids, you just got to get some sleep. They have no understanding what's going on. And I think part of what plays into this is in the original Nightmare Nancy's mom was clearly struggling or maybe not even struggling at the point we got to her with alcoholism and her dad is now inheriting that in this movie. So it's parents who are um, not only do they not have superpowers, but they have super weaknesses and they're barely present. So you've got 
kids who cannot get an ally to save their life. And I think that's why it's so powerful when Nancy arrives and walks in on the line of completing the legendary one, two, Freddy's coming for you um, chance, entering on the line, never sleep again. They finally will have the, the last Elm Street children anyway, finally will have a knowledgeable ally with basically a no superpower, but basically her experience and intelligence and inner fight are her superpower. And that's going to be paired up with Kristen's actual superpower, which is really the key to the whole thing, because it's the only useful one here, right? The rest of them seem like they'd be useful, but as soon as they come up one-on-one against Freddy, it's like a gunfight in, in Buster Scruggs or something. Like anyone standing across from him has no chance. So Nancy walks in um, with her trauma streak of gray hair and that wise, strong look in her eyes. And we know we're in good hands, at least to make this back to somewhat of a fair fight. And I think it's really underappreciated how Heather Langenkamp basically did with what the Halloween series in all its sturm and drong. And it was like um, trying to figure out how do we make Jimmy Lee Curtis's character? How do we make Laurie Strode um, have trauma and get more complicated as a character? And they had to do it in H2O and then take it back in the new trilogy and do it a different way. It was like so zigzag and so hard to accomplish for them. And her arc, Heather's arc in Nightmare One, Dream Warriors, and the amazing new Nightmare is an effortless completion of the same kind of arc, but it's not nearly talked about as much. It's like uh, watching an Olympic athlete who's just so good, everyone takes for granted all the work they had to put in to make it look that easy. And Nancy here, for as great as she is, is still a little weird, right? You still kind of get a feeling why she was able to intuit some of the things about Freddie. She's not as normal as she seems on the surface. She she has a very like whipsaw effect where she seems like she's being overly diplomatic with the staff at the mental hospital, but then she's very take charge in other scenes. It's a little hard to predict. And her outfit she wears at in, during the funeral scene is crazy. So she's got a touch of weird about her. One thing I definitely missed the first time I watched this was what was implied with the creepy... Um, an amazing practical effect, by the way, of Freddie basically absorbing the Elm Street kids that he's killing. They're shown in his torso for the first, this lore is set up for the first time in this movie. And you see like little hands and little faces and little elbows. It's a horrifying sight. And he says, the souls of the children give me strength. And the thing I missed was this makes Freddy basically a vampire. He's feeding off the death of the Elm Street kids. And that's horrifying because this is a vampire 
who feeds off not blood, but actual children. And, and just the implications of that are absolutely terrifying. And definitely one thing that I think gave this movie a lot of the punch that we encountered when we threw this out to a vote and got so many people coming back saying that this movie had really messed them up or really stuck with them. Astonishingly, we have come this far without talking about Robert Englund himself. This was the best balance the franchise ever struck between the semi-hated comical Freddy and the frightening Freddy of 1 and 2. I think he's actually scarier to me in this one than in 2, but maybe it's just because I love the movie so much. But Robert Englund ad-libbed a lot of the one-liners that became legendary for this movie. And you can tell he was really feeling this villain role in a way that Kane Hodder or others can't really do just by using body language and movement. Robert personifies this character so strongly I think that must at least subconsciously, if not overtly, been one of the things that inspired Wes Craven to take the franchise meta later in New Nightmare, because Robert was becoming Freddy and Freddy was becoming Robert. You could feel it in Elm Street 3. Now, this is going to be a first for this podcast, because as someone who watches a ton of horror movies and can watch martyrs unblinkingly and whatever. I, I can't even talk about the backstory of uh, Amanda Kruger in this movie. Like, so I'll just leave it to you to either know what it is or figure it out when you go watch it. But it's so dark that it makes me uncomfortable to even cover it. And the only thing I want to say about this is, um, it's because of how the backstory is presented, it lets the movie become really gothic. And that's rare for a slasher. It almost feels like a Hammer movie in the scenes where they're giving us these touches with the nuns. And that's part of why I love the junkyard ending of this movie so much, because it's a mix of gothic and Americana with the cars, like what's more American than automobiles and what's more representative of the late 80s nihilism than the wrecked version of those automobiles being the place where Freddy's ashes lay in rest. It's like the people who made the first um, Hammer Dracula's came in and did a short sequence for the movie Christine in its look anyway, which I find really unique. I think this is the best defeat of Freddy, quote unquote, in the whole series. I love how it ends and I love how Freddy is simultaneously fighting on two planes. He's fighting Neil and Nancy's father in the real world and he's fighting Nancy and Kristen and the remaining uh, remainder of the Elm Street children in the dream plane. And he's having to zig back and forth between the two. It's a very cruel, cool way to make it uh, leave Freddy as fearsome a villain as he is and make it plausible that he could be 
defeated because he's divided. He's it's basically Germany in World War II. He's fighting a two front war. And there are real stakes here because one of the greatest characters in modern horror cinema, Nancy, is going to go out. She dies. And I really felt that um, it was too soon <laughs> when I first watched it. And I'm glad New Nightmare came along to uh, so semi fix that. But it really is a testament to the difficulty of defeating a villain like Freddy. I think part of why I like the Elm Street series a touch more than the Friday the 13th series is I really do feel that you have to fight Freddy on a emotional plane as along with the physical plane. And Friday the 13th intermittently does that a little bit of legacy of trauma, a little bit of, uh, Definitely a legacy of being paralyzed by fear and, and rumor and the urban legend of as Jason grows. But in this one, Freddy doesn't need a running start for any of that. It's it starts the minute. I mean, this movie has an amazing opening scene where Kristen is already being tormented by being in the dream plane and exert, showing us her talent that we're going to learn more about. But the visuals in there of all the Elm Street children that have died so far, just arrayed is absolutely horrifying. Freddy hasn't even entered yet, and it's horrifying. And the worm Freddy, by the way, I mean, incredible that you have something that could look ridiculous, like the Freddy worm creature, and have it still have one of the best line readings of the entire franchise when he first spots Nancy and just is like, you. This movie, on top of having a great, impeccable beginning, has a perfect ending, not just the final clash between Freddy and Nancy and the rest, but also how it actually ends with the shot of the paper mache house. I never did paper mache, but I certainly never would have after watching this movie with the light coming on, just a subtle touch of. Freddy's not completely defeated without overdoing it. I think really the only flaw for me of the first Elm Street is how it ends. I find the car with Freddy's sweater pattern like cool looking visually. But I mean, I literally when I saw that as a kid, when I saw the movie as a kid, I was terrified. But I ended the movie laughing, which I'm not sure you should be doing in a horror movie between the car and Nancy's mom getting sucked through the door, which also looked ridiculous to me. I left the movie with a smile. I left this movie with a chill. So I was really surprised and glad to see this movie pop up with so many votes of support. Support. I really, honestly, I didn't know what to expect when we asked the question, what horror movie wrecked your childhood? I didn't think I expected any one movie to dominate. I expected like a 10-way, 20-way tie because... A lot of this really depends on what age you were when you saw something, right? Like I've met a lot of horror fans who were just wrecked by the the closet, you know, jump scare in the ring or, you know, it, 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 it varies, right? I've, there, a lot of people were really, really terrified of the original Candyman, which I think is what, mid-90s, 95? And were scared to death of mirrors. And all these movies were mentioned with hundreds of votes in the voting. But to see this one... Um, get 
not just so many votes, but so many vivid memories in the posts that we asked this question listed underneath by people. You could tell by the way they were talking about it that it was like they were time traveling. They went back to the time they first saw this movie as kids and they were feeling what it felt like to get wrecked by the mighty Freddy Krueger and the mighty Wes Craven, even though he didn't get to direct it. His darkness, that realism of darkness that he really shared almost spiritually, I think, with George Romero, definitely was more in this sequel than any of the other Elm Street franchise. So let's talk real quick about the best horror movie we saw this week. In this case, it's a Netflix vampire film called Blood Red Sky. Our Horror Weekly episodes are pretty reckless, I think, sometimes with spoilers. I really don't want to spoil this, so I'm not going to cover it in, in much detail, except to say the reason I want to talk about this, it's a really good horror movie. It's not perfect. I got bored in a couple places. I thought the the real world plot um, so basically, sorry, the, the, the basic plot of this is, is there's a plane that's being hijacked and the plane that's being hijacked in, I don't want to give too much away, but it's basically going to be the vampire version of snakes on a plane, which is a great um, conceit, right? Like literally one of my favorite vampire movies, maybe even horror movies of all time is uh, the night flyer. So I'm a sucker for this kind of premise, but this movie is also surprisingly touching and surprisingly bleak. <laughs> like this movie doesn't pull any punches uh, plot wise. It's not deep, but it is fun. The reason I wanted to talk about this movie, particularly though, aside from just the fact that it was the best horror movie I saw this week is there's a category. There's a, I mean, new maybe might be a dated word now, but there's a new category of movie in my head, which is pleasant streaming surprise, right? Like there is so much content. I feel like there's movies that haven't even been made yet that somehow exist on Tubi. So, um, oh, by the way, the Day of the Dead, the version of Day of the Dead that's on Tubi is hilariously an actual VHS recording. You got to check out the beginning of it um, just to see how amazing it is. But I love that twisted, weird multiverse inside of Tubi I'm obsessed with. But the the pleasant streaming surprise movie is the movie you've heard either little or nothing about. And as soon as you see the graphic for it or the thumbnail, you read a little synopsis of it. Um, you just are expecting mediocre time waster, but you're hoping it's either going to have enough scenes to have made it worth your time or it's good, bad enough that it's hilarious and you can have the story to tell people the next day about how you lost <laughs> two hours of your life that you want to get back. Um, but it's really rare to get a movie that is you you don't see coming you don't really know much about and then it surprises you by being really really good and that's what this movie gave to me 
it also has a clever twist on something that 30 Days of Night couldn't do, which is what happens when vampires turn people and does the vampire army grow? In 30 Days of Night, that didn't happen. A matter of fact, Ben, I think Foster's name, uh, amazing actor, he wanted to be turned in 30 Days of Night and the vampires wouldn't give it to him. Um, so in this movie, you have a particularly psychotic character and you start to get this creeping feeling on the back of your neck as the vampire, uh, as vampirism spreads and you're like, wait, uh-oh, if this guy, I think his name in the movie is Eight Ball, if this guy gets turned into a vampire and retains his memories He's going to be a super-powered psychotic, which you don't want. And um, it was a, a cool way to add a feature that even a vampire film as good as 30 Days didn't have. It's also a movie that takes the curse of being a vampire particularly seriously. There's no glamour here. Being a vampire is truly a curse. It's truly not going to end well. That's something that like Bram Stoker's Dracula tried to do, but it was like sort of a fake out, right? Like Gary Oldman walked around all the time being like, oh, I'm cursed to live forever. And I cursed the God that brought this on me and et cetera. But his life looks pretty great a lot of the time, right? I certainly during most of Bram Stoker's Dracula would rather be trading my day-to-day existence with Count Dracula than with like a lot of the other people in that film who were either stuck in really boring places because of, you know, misogyny and because of uh, societal uh, oppression or, I mean, that's part of why Anthony Hopkins was able to run so wild in that movie as Van Helsing was everyone else had to be kind of boring. So this movie, uh, Blood Red Sky takes this curse very seriously and it's really dark and and what it means to become a vampire and who takes out the final vampire in this movie is a particularly bleak uh, result. So the fact that the movie was brave enough to go there, I really appreciate. Well, that's it for us this week at Horror Weekly. Thank you to everyone who commented on the what wrecked your childhood <laughs> uh, post and voted on it. That's probably not the easiest thing in the world to be talking about online publicly. So your answers were amazing and we absolutely appreciate them. Um, follow the page at horror weekly on Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere else that we're on social media that you can find us so that you can participate in these. The more voices that we get brought to the table, the better we feel the podcast and the page are And until next Wednesday, have a great horror week.